Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds. I'm Julia Glotz, a writer, editor, and consultant specializing in food and drink. Every week, I'm joined by an expert guest to discuss the news, trends, and developments shaping food and grocery retail right now. You'll get a personal perspective on how business leaders and leading thinkers from different parts of our industry are making sense of the big issues. My guests will also share what's on their personal reading list, bringing you a curated selection of thought-provoking articles from the trade press, national media, and other titles. You can find links to all the articles and suggestions for further reading in the episode show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. Now let's start the show. Hello and welcome back to The Picklist. I hope you're all well and had a good start to the year. We are now in season five of the podcast and this is episode 56. So before we dive into today's episode, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you who have been listening to The Picklist, who've been supporting me and helping me spread the word about it. It's really, really brilliant to have your support. Thank you. Now, we are starting season five of The Picklist with a fantastic guest. Rich Clothier is Managing Director of Wyke Farms. You will probably be familiar with the Wyke Farms brand of cheddar and butter. And you may also know that Rich is very passionate about sustainability and creating a sustainable dairy sector that's fit for the future. Recently, Rich worked with Lidl to create a carbon neutral cheddar for their own label range, and he's also just launched his own carbon-neutral cheddar brand. He talks to me about why and how he created those carbon-neutral products, the importance of robust accreditation and certification when making carbon claims, and consumer demand for more sustainable products, and particularly products that make carbon claims. Plus, we discuss soaring fuel and food costs, and how the grocery sector is likely to react to Jack Monroe's groundbreaking campaign, drawing attention to how inflation is disproportionately affecting the poorest households. So that's coming up in a moment, but first let me bring you up to speed with some of the big food and grocery retail stories this week. I've already mentioned Jack Monroe just now, but I think it's hard to overstate the impact of her campaign on inflation over the past week. What started as a Twitter thread highlighting how prices of basic food items have risen much faster than fancier products has now prompted the ONS to announce that it will revise its calculations to provide a more realistic picture of how inflation is affecting different income groups. Unilever has announced plans to cut 1,500 management jobs globally. It comes after its failed attempt to buy the consumer health business of GlaxoSmithKline, although Unilever said the jobs shakeup had been in the pipeline for some time. It has also announced a change to its corporate structure, creating five core business units, including one solely focused on ice cream. Morrison's new owner, Clayton Debillier and Rice, has denied it is looking for a successor for CEO David Potts. Last weekend, reports emerged suggesting that headhunters had been appointed, but CD and R told the grocer that this was categorically untrue. Ocado announced it had made one of the biggest technological breakthroughs in its history, but developing several new bits of kit, including a new robotic picking arm, which it says will dramatically reduce the number of staff required in warehouses and ultimately enable faster and cheaper grocery picking and deliveries. 
It's also developed a lighter and cheaper version of its grocery picking robots that can be retrofitted into existing warehouses. The legal requirement to wear a face covering in stores ended this week, but Sainsbury's, Waitrose and John Lewis were among the retailers to say they would continue to encourage shoppers to wear masks in their stores. The Advertising Standards Authority has banned ads from Oatly's Help Dad campaign from January 2021 for making vague and unsubstantiated claims about Oatly's environmental impact compared against cow's milk. The ASA investigated the ad on five issues and upheld complaints about four of them. Oatly said it accepted it should have been more specific about how it described some of the scientific data cited in the campaign. Tesco is selling cauliflowers at just 49p a head instead of the normal 79p to help British growers who are struggling to shift their crop following a winter glut. Much of the British crop was delayed because of difficult growing conditions and didn't make it onto shelves in time for Christmas. It's only now hitting the market when demand is much lower. And finally, Asda is launching a £1 engagement ring in time for Valentine's Day. It features a diamond-style gem and comes in a red heart-shaped box. These are some of the big stories in food and grocery retail this week. You can find the links to everything I mentioned in the show notes and also on thepicklist.co.uk. And now, here's my conversation with Rich Clothier. Rich, welcome to The Picklist. Thank you for being my guest. Thank you for inviting me, Julia. It's an honour to be here. Now, you are Managing Director of Wyke Farms, which is a very well-known brand of cheddar. You also do some butters. Um, You're based in Somerset, where your family has been farming for more than 150 years. And I would say you're particularly well-known in the industry for your work on sustainability. And we'll actually talk quite a bit about sustainability today, not least because you recently worked with Lidl to launch a carbon neutral cheddar for their own label range. And you have also just announced the launch of your own carbon neutral cheddar brand, Ivy's Preserve. I have so many questions for you, but before we dive into the nitty gritty of carbon labeling and carbon neutrality, I wonder if you could take us back to the start of your interest in the environment. When did you first begin looking seriously at sustainability within Wyke and what prompted that? Well, we've always, as a, as a farming Somerset business, we've always been predisposed to wanting to look out for the environment. And my grandparents used to say that if you look after nature, nature will look after you. And so we've always been really tuned into the environment and climate change and, and nature. And, um, and I think that what, what actually changed was that up until about 2010, no one was really interested in it. So we would talk about, you know, we're doing this and doing that, and no one was really interested in it. And we got to, um, we, it got to about 2010 and we were, we were starting to talk about it and people were interested. So then we formalised the sort of mission into our 100% green strategy. And a lot of it we were doing already, and we just pushed it a bit further. At the time, the business was, um, it, it was tough trading for us, particularly in the multiple retailers in the UK. We weren't making any money and we were 
we were doing quite a bit of cost cutting within the business. And I was talking to my brother, Tom, who runs our operations. And, and I said to him, it's really weird, isn't it? Everything we're doing to lower cost and drive efficiency impacts in a positive way on the environment. And, um, and we had a look at it. And it actually, it was the case that everything we did to consolidate production runs and remove washes and, you know, we were reducing, it, the, the impact was reducing packaging waste and other things and, and um, reducing energy. And so then we thought to ourselves, well, what, what would happen then if we said, right, we want to actively improve our impact on the environment and lay down a journey? If we approached our um, lean manufacturer from that angle, what savings would that then um, uh, unlock? And it's really funny because lean manufacture is very inward looking in a factory. It's all about using less and managing what you've got better. Whereas actually when you look at um, how you can be a more environmentally responsible business, it's very outward looking. So instead of looking at you know managing your resources necessarily you look at producing the resources like you know we decided we wanted to produce all of our own power and we wanted to be um virtually completely independent in our water usage and things like that and and actually we unlocked loads of savings and made the business much much more efficient and actually all the work that we've done on the farm with the farmers to lower their emissions has actually made them more efficient farmers as well so I'm a great believer that a low carbon business is a low cost business and that if you if you can link lean manufacturing with strong environmental management, you can get something really quite special that you don't get when you look at either thing on its own. And I'm so interested in what you were saying about those early 2010s and looking to engage retail buyers on this and finding it a little bit hard because sustainability just wasn't on the radar in the same way. What is it like today when you go and see buyers? Are they all bought into the idea that this really matters? And how has the current conversation around inflation and some you know, tough conversations around price, how has that affected their attitude towards sustainability? I think there was a time when, you know, I used to bang on about it. And, you know, some of my friends who were buyers used to say, yeah, all right, Rich, you know. <laughs> Yeah, it's like it's, it's it's important, but you know, if you look at if you talk, you looked at the shopper panels in the early uh, in the early part of the century, and it was yeah, it was registering, but it wasn't a massive driver, and it was seen as like a little bit geeky, a good thing, but a little bit geeky, and probably it's only been the last really the last five years where um, we really feel like people. Our, our, our customers feel that it matters and actually um the first area that we saw where people were really engaging with it was in the us which really surprised me i was at a trade show in the us in about 2010 just after 2010 and i was talking about renewables and everything else and they were just blown away and i i thought i i'd said to our marketing team that i thought that it was probably irrelevant in the us because you build this picture don't you of a massive economy where they use loads of resources 
you know, their cars do about half as many miles to the gallon as ours do. So do they care about the environment? Well, yes, they do, because actually the counter lobby is massive in the US. So there's a really strong environmental lobby that have been looking for natural foods, produced in an environmentally responsible way for quite a long time. And actually, because it's such a big economy, there's quite a lot of them. So it became really relevant, and that quite excited me. What is the um, sort of buyer attitude like today in the UK towards sustainability? And is there a danger that some of those conversations around inflation could potentially interfere with that interest? I think that the... I think that the buyers are more patient maybe in the UK than in other parts of the world. You know, in um, when we talk to people, and it, it might be just because we're dealing, you know, in a more premium market. When, when we're imported cheddars into Asia or the US, we're, we're at the really premium end of the market. So it's not just about, you know, over here it tends to be, well, what's your plan? What are you going to do? And, you know, it, when we're talking about price, the buyers will say, well, you know, they've got quite a good plan as well. well one can build a good plan. But I think what um, in the Asian markets, they're a lot more impatient about how far down the line you are. And they're looking for tangible evidence of some sort of delivery. How far down the line you are in terms of your sustainability credentials? Yes, definitely. Yeah. So they're looking for they're they're looking for suppliers that have hit milestones in terms of sort of net zero or tangible things they're actually doing with regard to you know water's a big issue, obviously, um, and energy and waste and all those sorts of things. So they are, and and also. Um, one of the key things with any of these sort of environmental claims is to work with people that, you know, professionals that can give some sort of independent affirmation. Totally. So challenge the business and give it and give it give the claims credibility because there are so many food businesses of all types making loads of claims, self-certified footprinting and everything else, which you know, it's, it's great and it's disruptive, but at the end of the day, you, you know, you want to have some credibility and also you don't want shoppers to sort of lose faith. So that sort of credibility and independent affirmation is really key. And that's why right from the start, I wanted to work with the Carbon Trust because they're a business that I have a huge amount of respect for. And then on the farm side, we've worked with Promar, who are really, really good on the environmental side and they're using carbon trust approved toolkits so um and that was really important for me because although we do our own sort of carbon balance sheets and weekly reporting internally it is it is really important it's like you know it would be like me auditing my own accounts you know totally we turn over 120 million pounds a year I I think people would want a little bit more integrity than me just writing my own accounts. People might like that, but... but. 100%. And as you say, though, you know, greenwashing, awareness around greenwashing is is rising. Consumers are becoming more sceptical. And there is that danger, isn't there, that at some point, if those claims don't stand up, consumers just assume that anything to do with an environmental claim is nonsense or can't be trusted. 
Absolutely. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about your carbon neutral cheddar, um, and the 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 one that you worked with um, Lidl on, because you've you've had a relationship with Lidl for a long time. How did that conversation around the carbon neutral cheddar start? Did they come to you? Did you come well, to them? To be honest, I've been banging on about it for years, and um, you know about you know trying to get to carbon neutrality on on cheese and I've literally been talking about it for years and they were quite excited about it and I was like well that sounds great you know if you're excited about it and they wanted to get more involved and see what's happening on the farm and everything else and um and to be honest I I'm excited by anyone who's sort of excited about cheese nice cheese and the environment so um, so it worked really well. And they were quite, you know, quite fast moving with the project and, um, you know, keen to understand, you know, how it could work and everything else. And and, and what I liked about it is it, I, I want to be a bit disruptive within mm. this, um, within this subject, because for me as a farmer, it, it really hurts me to see, um, uh, the, you know, the plant alternatives, you know, making claims about being much more environmentally responsible and, you know, quite a lot of the criticism that, far, that farmers are getting. And I guess we wanted to do something that was disruptive, that would make other people say, well, this is, a, this is important. We all need to really start to do something because there's so much more that we can all do on farm and in our own businesses and we have to do it to enable to enable us to carry on dairy farming and producing cheeses in 10 or 15 years time and we've lost so much time you know we should have been doing this 10 years ago really. so and and you've you've already mentioned you've also got um your own carbon neutral cheddar brand that you've just launched as well just tell us a little bit about that how is that positioned and where is that available well, at the moment, it's um, we've launched it in the US, um, and that's um, our Ivy's Vintage Reserve, and that's named after my grandmother Ivy, that was the first person to write the recipe down. And um, we're just launching that now in the UK, so we're talking to retailers in the UK about that product. And that is a top tier vintage cheddar for cheese boards. And you know, first and foremost, for me, it's a really fantastic vintage cheddar. And, you know, the, the carbon neutrality and the work we're doing on the environment should be part of the supporting messages. You know, the fact that, it, you know, it, we're only 10 miles from the village of Cheddar, where Cheddar was born and all that sort of stuff. So first and foremost, it's, I think it's a brilliant cheddar. But secondly, it's about doing work that we can to improve the environment and, you know, set set our business on the journey to being what I call a net positive business, which is, and, and the net positive for me doesn't just mean, you know, carbon. It means yeah. net positive in terms of our impact on the local community, you know, the, the people that we work with and the relationships that we have and the environment. And we challenge ourselves and our farmers to be honest and say, is the community, the environment and everything else better for having you here than it would be if you were taken away you know and that actually is that you have to have quite an honest conversation mm. with yourself when you say that and um and it, and it does make you critical of the way that you fit into 
the you know the regional economy and, and and everything else and 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 that is important for me because I think that that's baseline how we should judge ourselves as as professional businesses. You mentioned something there about um, ultimately needing to produce a fantastic cheddar that people will enjoy eating and then having the carbon neutrality as a sort of secondary or supporting feature. What is your sense of how attuned UK shoppers are to the whole carbon debate? Um, Because I find whenever you look at consumer research, you sort of get completely opposing views, either saying, you know, huge percentage of people are looking to um, switch to products that have some kind of carbon pledge. And then you see other surveys that say, actually, people have absolutely no idea what carbon neutrality means, and they're just completely confused. What is your read on shopper attitudes and shopper behavior in this area? I think there's two, there's definitely two things for me. There's the quantitative data, which, you know, people like the Carbon Trust add up and make all the calculations. And then there's the qualitative stories that we can tell our shoppers. And, um, and you know, because quite often they'll say, well, what does that mean? And then you say to them, well, you know, we've, you know, we've stopped growing maize on our farm, you know, we're growing these clover lays, which, you know, ground cover over the winter, you know, really high in protein. And, you know, it, it draws the nitrogen out of the air into the soils and um, we're spreading digestate on the fields and the farms around us rather than artificial fertilizer. And actually that's what, that's what shoppers want with their food. You know, they want, people want stories, don't they? They want stories to support their food choices. And especially in those export markets and the Asian markets, people want to talk about food, Julia, don't they? You know, wherever you go, if people have got something special, they want to tell you about it, don't they? And and that's what it's about for me. It's about, it's about having the baseline quantitative data right but at the same time using that as a platform to tell these stories about all the fantastic things that our farmers are doing to um, to produce this cheese that we're delivering to the shoppers all around the world. I think it's an important point, actually, that just having you know, carbon neutral status, as impressive as that is, is not enough. Just slapping a logo onto the front of pack and hoping it will do the selling for you it you need to use you need to do something with it as you say in terms of storytelling use it as yeah. a starting point to tell a story rather than hoping it will it will do the heavy lifting for you yeah it's not it's not about the numbers necessarily they're there for the they're there to support the credibility if people want to have a proper look it is about the um it's about the um qualitative stories that you know, our farmers and we're doing in the business. So that's that, that's my sort of opinion. Yeah. Is your sense that shoppers either here in the UK or internationally are willing to pay extra for brands that do have some kind of carbon claim or certification? I think if they, I think if they understand, you know, the stories around it and what it means, then, then, yeah, I think, I think, they can be persuaded, but it's um, but it has you know it has to be part of you know the overall PR and you know advertising and the website and actually in the, quite a lot of those export markets, people are quite interested in what they're buying and um, 
So they are looking for reasons to believe, like like we all are in everything that we buy. So um, I think that's that's quite important. Absolutely. Now we're going to stay with carbon for a little while longer because one of the articles we picked for our episode uh, also touches on carbon. This is a piece from the FT and the headline is Cost of Neutralizing Carbon Emissions Soars as Demand Escalates. This is reporting that after years of low prices, the price of carbon offsets is soaring because there's so many companies that are making net zero pledges and are rushing to offset their carbon footprint. And since June 2021, the price of so-called nature-based offsets, which are things like tree planting, um, has more than trebled. Which I was so intrigued. What did you make of this? Is this good news because it shows the demand is there? Or do you think higher prices could put people off and and actually make it more difficult for people to make commitments? Um, I was I was a little bit worried about the um, the element of trading in it. That that worried me because um, I've never been keen on um, speculation on food and things like that because I think that um, you know it's such an important mission that. We don't want to claim we had a we had a similar thing with milk quotas in the sort of 90s where there were some really big football clubs trading milk quotas and it just became unaffordable to farmers. And um, you know, I was thinking about that about it as well, which I'm I'm not keen about. But actually, one of the things that really concerns me about some of these credits is that you know they have to be a force for good, don't they? And when you, if you're going to buy carbon credits, you want to believe you're buying something that's a force for good. Now, you could argue that if if you're investing in tree planting in areas of the world where people need to grow food, that's not necessarily a force for good. And I think that my advice to anyone who's buying carbon credits would be to, to give it the force for good test. You know, is it a force for good? Is it... Um, is it right? There are some problems with the credit system in as much as, you know, I'm producing loads of carbon credits in our business. Um, at the moment, under the Coyote Protocol, we were classed as a developed nation. So um, those credits currently aren't allowed to be counted. So you do have to do them in developing countries. That will change. But um, as long as they're gold standard approved credits and they are, you can be sure that they're a force for good. I think it's okay. But one of the things that I would ask the um, standards body to do is can they be a bit more innovative about the types of projects that can come forward? I mean, for example, there's a load of people in the UK living in fuel poverty that need their houses insulating. You know, what a fantastic project to sort of be investing in, you know, because you'd be saving, you'd be tangibly saving energy in these houses, saving fossil fuels, and also having a really positive social impact on people who really need it, basically stopping people from freezing over the winter who are vulnerable. And I think that those are the types of areas where, as the system develops, we need to be trying to make sure that it is used as a force for good, because there's nothing wrong with a big corporate, you know, trying to offset some of its 
emissions and buying into projects that really are helping people who need help and improving the environment because it's you know it's it doesn't have to be a competitive thing you know it's a big world and you know it's I don't have any issue with it and I think it's that making it a force for good thing and I do worry when people are speculating on it and investing in it and that sort of thing because that clouds it a bit for me. Yeah, and also I suppose there's already quite a bit of negative press around offsetting. You know, there are articles now that are essentially saying any offsetting is essentially greenwashing because it allows companies to essentially buy their way out of making any meaningful environmental commitments. How do you think that debate is is going to develop? What do you make of of, of those sorts of accusations? Um, I think I think that comes down to what we were talking about before about self assessed type claims, and that's why if you know if someone's being audited to pass twenty fifty for proper carbon footprinting, and then pass twenty sixty, which is the neutrality standard then part of past 2060 is you have to have really strong carbon management within the whole cradle to grave supply chain and you have to make tangible reductions every year and be committed to being on a journey so i think that there's a lot there's a it, it just depends i think the I think the past 2050 and 2060 system is absolutely vital if you want to make those sorts of claims because it gives the integrity to the whole process. And, and then I think that, you know, the carbon credit scheme in many ways is quite young and it's still developing. And um, I think that it's got a long way to go, but it, it doesn't have to necessarily be a bad, you know, a bad thing. It can be a really you know force a strong force for good which is um good and and a strong force for social good as well as environmental good and i think that's where i would challenge the people of minister the gold standard to say you know to demonstrate you know if you're producing carbon credits to demonstrate they can be a, a source for environmental good and social good at the same time now the next article is one you picked and it's from the guardian And the headline is Tory rejection of windfall tax on energy firms beggars belief, says Ed Miliband. This is reporting that the government has said no to proposals to impose a £1.2 billion windfall tax on energy companies, some of whom are making some very healthy profits as a result of soaring wholesale gas prices. Labour had proposed that move uh, to ease the burden on families struggling with fuel bills. There is actually some support from the Tory side for this as well. In particular, there is uh, Chris Skidmore MP, a former energy minister, who also interestingly has set up what he calls a net zero support group to defend, as the article puts it, efforts to decarbonise the economy against some of his colleagues who are claiming it costs too much. Rich, why did you pick this article? What stood out to you? I picked this because I think it's a a prime example of fast food politics, as I call it, where there's the the reason why we're in this problem with with green solutions and also energy prices is because successive governments have been devoid of any proper energy strategy 
and certainly no transition strategy from fossil fuels to green. There's been sort of fits and starts. Ed Miliband had a vision for a, a greener energy production system, but there was no there was no transition. And, and I I get frustrated that this was this is the first conversation public conversation that either of the parties have had about energy publicly in it that's made any decent news for a, a number of years and what it needs is it needs we need a proper energy policy because to how did we end up in a situation where we're buying between five and 15 percent of our gas from Russia, you know, and we're seeing massive price increases. There's a real supply and demand problem. And I think actually the, re the reason why um, I was quite interested in it is because there's a lot of parallels between the energy, lack of energy policy and the lack of food policy. And we're seeing massive inflation in food at the moment and huge milk prices. And if one, if one of the parties suddenly said, right, what we need to do is charge the dairy farmers windfall taxes, I'd be absolutely up in arms because actually what we need to be doing with, with both the energy and the food is having a policy where we can be more self-sufficient as a nation, there's an element of fossil fuels that need to be produced. There does probably need to be a transition. They, the fossil fuel companies currently pay 30% corporation tax, so that's higher than a lot of normal companies anyway. So the government's probably going to be getting quite a lot of extra money in from the fossil fuel companies, but they're not going to push it in the direction of green energy production and actually probably the money that the government takes off the energy companies none of it's going to go towards a more robust energy strategy so i just i just find the whole food and energy strategy sort of devoid of any type of intellect and you know both sides sort of jump on the bandwagon suddenly when you know gas prices are you know more than trebled um, well they're up about tenfold or something at one point you know and it just I just worry for the future because we don't have a food or energy policy and we don't have an integrated food farming and energy policy which is what we need and um, I just find it really frustrating that you know the best that the opposition can offer is a sticky plaster but you know, at the same time, the Tories don't have any ideas anyway. It's like, it's like, where's the brains gone out of politics? Where are the big thinkers gone? You know, who are the people that sit down and say, this is how we need to be? And the sad thing is, like, we're going to talk about the next article, the people that pay the price, so the people that are on the poverty line, you know, they're the, you know, those people are the ones that are going to be you know, not being able to afford to heat their homes this winter and everything else. And you've already mentioned the fact that when politics uh, doesn't come up with the big ideas and doesn't come up with a coherent strategy, it is often the poorest and most vulnerable households that end up footing the bill, which brings us to your final article pick, which is from The Mirror. And the headline is, Hungry Brits will starve to death as food and energy prices soar, Jack Monroe warns. Now, the headline 
really says it all. This has received a lot of coverage um, over the past week. It's a really powerful piece. Jack is incredibly effective and incredibly powerful at putting her finger on on the issues that really matter. Um, but just for the benefit of listeners, this was uh, really the, prompted by a brilliant Twitter thread that she posted about how standard inflation metrics vastly underestimate the impact of inflation on the poorest households. Uh, Jack points out prices on some basic food lines have increased by more than 340% over the past year. There's also less choice available because retailers have stripped out a lot of uh, value tier products. Um, that Twitter thread, I think, has had millions of views by now. I th- it's probably fair to say it's quite a big talking point within grocery as well. And actually, just before we went on air, the ONS came out with an announcement saying they are now going to make some adjustments and to, to how they report on inflation to better reflect the impact on, on some poorer households. Jack has also teamed up with um, some experts to launch a new price index to specifically look at what is happening to the cost of basic tier products specifically. Rich, why did you pick this article and what do you make of the campaign and some of the responses we've had from industry to this? Um, I think I was I was enthused actually with the way that people have reacted to it. And I think that um, what I really liked about the article is that quite often, you know, people are you know, struggling to produce food for their families, they're patronised, you know, in the past I've seen these articles where you can buy a sack of 25 kilos of rice for five pounds and, you know, you could feed your family for a year and all this sort of stuff. And actually, what I really liked about the article is it cut through all the crap, to be honest, and it actually showed that the people that were managing their household budgets in a really tight way and feeding big families have actually seen increases in their costs of living just in food by hundreds of percent. You know, if they were, if they were paying 10 pounds a week to feed their family, they're now paying 40 or 50 pounds a week. And um, I think it was a really good thing to highlight because, you know, we're quite a lot of us are really lucky that we're not, I'm really lucky. I'm not in that, you know, I'm not, in that position and quite a lot of us are and actually I think it's a really important thing to highlight that that there are an awful lot of people in the UK that are struggling to eat struggling to heat their homes and actually when we look at the RPI you know and we'll say oh my goodness it's seven percent and that might include housing costs and all these millions of things that probably haven't even gone up yet actually um cheese being one of them if you look at cheese retails and supermarkets they've not gone up at all yet actually so you know the the things that have gone up massively are the starchy sort of energy dense pastas and rices and i understand that because of the shipping costs from you know the other side of the world and that sort of thing but there's a whole wave of secondary inflation coming now because wages are going up massively and all other food products are going up and um, these people really are at the front line of that again you know the same people that we were talking about about the energy crisis you know these people are being hit first every time and um, 
And I think that the article is really important. It's really important for the food industry, I think, to reflect on, you know, how we how we do price some of these goods as well and how um, um, and whether or not we should be looking at certain products that, you know, are more subsidized from other luxury goods and things like that, because there's an awful lot of effort put into producing a cheap meal deal, for example, with a bottle of wine and uh, and everything else for a tenner, which is probably, you know, cut to the bone. Maybe we should be paying a little bit more for some of those things, more luxury type items. And then on some of the other items, you know, um, trying to subsidise some of the cost. Totally. And I think that's one of the points that that Jack made in in the Twitter thread as well and in the article, which is, you know, yeah, that that dine in for £10 deal has stayed at £10 for quite a long time. And you know, there are, it's essentially middle class consumers are being subsidized in in some of these choices. And some incredibly vulnerable households are having to absorb enormous increases. Do you think as the grocery industry reflects on this, would you expect some retailers to put some of the basic lines back in that got stripped out in range rationalizations? I think, yeah, I think they should. I mean, to, to be honest, you know, I always not retailers because I have to because I've got I've got farming blood in me. You know, it's it's uh, it's in my DNA to not UK retailers, but <laughs> that they are they're incredibly efficient. You know, there there isn't a there's not a there's probably not a cheaper vehicle in the world for for taking product off a farm and distributing it you know we have the most efficient retail machine in the world they're really good at what they do so we shouldn't knock them too much but at the same time i think there is more that can be done in you know trying to trying to recognize that you know some of these lines are actually critical to people's um people's livelihood you know the way that people live so i think that is important but i think also it's it's also exposed exposed to vulnerability in having a food system that is so reliant on products from the other side of the world for all of our starchy and high energy products and you know one of the things that you know i really i, I wasn't a great supporter of brexit as you know and one of the things that frightened me about brexit was this this view that we didn't really need to produce a lot of these things ourselves and we could rely on these people from the other side of the world because they can do it so much cheaper than us anyway. And I was always frightened by that. And I think um, COVID brought that home to us when we realised, actually, we don't produce any of our own PPE. And then suddenly, when everyone wants it, there's none left for us. And then suddenly it's the same with pasta and rice, or if we can't get it from one side. I'm not saying we should grow rice in the paddy fields of Somerset or anything like that, but it's. I think there's a vulnerability for, for not making or manufacturing any of these things, any of these you know core sort of food groups ourselves. And you know, there's an argument for saying we're not producing enough dairy, we're not producing enough grain, and you know, we're not productive enough as a farming community. And I think the reason why productivity is, is quite low on farms is because the you know the su- successive rounds of price cuts and you know you've only got to have meetings with some of our farmer groups, and there's hardly anyone under 60, you know. Yeah. 
the farmers of the future are only going to come and grow food for us if they think they're valued and you know we can you know we can pay them more to do it so i think that the short-term problem of the inflation on food and energy is a is a sort of lack of any sort of strategy but at the same time we need some short-term fixes because otherwise people are going to go through a lot of pain and discomfort absolutely rich we're out of time but if listeners want to find out more about you more about your carbon neutral cheddar more about what you do at wike what's the best way to do that and for them to connect with you Go onto the website, have a look at what we're doing. And then if they've got any questions, sort of email through and we're always happy to talk to people. Fantastic. Rich, thank you so much for being my guest. Thanks, Julia. It's been an honour to be invited. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and found it useful. If you did, please consider giving The Picklist a five-star rating on whichever platform you're listening and leave a review. It tells me you're enjoying the show and would like it to continue, and it helps me reach more listeners. If you'd like to connect, you can find me on LinkedIn at juliaglotz.com and on thepicklist.co.uk. And if you'd like more thought-provoking reads for your personal reading list, please subscribe to The Trim, my free weekly newsletter at juliaglotz.com forward slash newsletter. See you next time.